0: Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. Whether it's with someone close to you or someone you just met, sharing your faith can be difficult, but our God knows the challenge and his word contains wisdom for how to meet that challenge. In our current series, Living an Intentional Life, we're learning about the five eyes of evangelism. Identify, invest, intercede, inform, and invite. These five steps will help you to build a biblical strategy for bringing the gospel to others and watching for God to multiply your efforts. We're glad you're listening and we hope this series will renew your commitment to spread the good news. Now let's listen in. Good morning. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here today. We're continuing in a series that we have literally called "Living an Intentional Life," and it's kind of been dubbed by us as these five eyes that we think about as believers in Jesus when we come to faith. The purpose being that we would identify those around us who who don't yet have faith, who haven't yet heard the gospel in a language and vocabulary that they understand that somehow or another we could invest in those relationships, continuing to intercede, to pray to God on their behalf that the Holy Spirit would do a work. And today we land on the inform week, the idea that we're gonna inform somebody the truth of what we believe and why we believe it through the gospel narrative. When you came in this morning, hopefully in addition to the worship guide that you were handed, you also picked up um, a God's Good News booklet, because um, we're going to walk through that at some point this morning, and we'll just pretend this is the kitchen, and if you need seconds or you didn't get something when you came in, you just make your way to one of the tables at any of the entrances and grab that. There's a table in the balcony that has plenty to go around, so we want to make sure you have that as we dive in later to the message. Now, God um, has blessed Susan. Susan and I, with three kids, the youngest is a fan of Cocoa Puffs. Um, some of you are, resonate with that. Um, but it wasn't until we went to kids' camp last summer that he had real, like, non-generic Cocoa Puffs. And some of you are like, hey, listen, the off-brands taste just the same as the regular cereal. Well, not so much in our house, because Susan doesn't buy an off-brand generic version of Cocoa Puffs. She buys the Trader Joe's slightly healthier version of cocoa puffs. And so we get to kids' camp a couple summers ago, and Simon's literally having his morning cereal, and he's like, oh, dad, these cocoa puffs are real good. (laughs) Do you think mom will buy this kind of cocoa puffs when we get back to our house? I was like, "Nobody, you're just going to have to enjoy those at camp cuz your mom is committed to the slightly healthier, less sugar version of cocoa puffs that they sell at the Trader Joe's, so you're just going to have to suffer through it." I've shared this story before when you when you volunteer in kids ministry. Honestly, the reason why I've done this for so many years is because they literally you walk in in any given setting and they basically hand you a sermon illustration ready to unwrap. They're like, "Hey, Pastor Nick, here's this." Several summers ago, I was in Jonathan Creek with all of the Rolling Hills Elementary School kids from all the campuses, and I sat next to this kid at lunchtime named Riggins. Some of you have heard this story before, and Riggins took a sip of the soda that he had chosen for the day, and he didn't do like all the other boys at camp who were literally going through and mixing every single one of the sodas that they could possibly mix. I saw this one kid go down the line, and he's like, Coke, Diet Coke, Sprite, Mella Yella, said that real Southern, Dr. Pepper something else, sweet tea, and milk. <laughs> Riggins just sat down with a regular brown soda, and he took that first sip, and he said, whew, Pastor Nick, that's good. And I said, buddy, have, have you never, what, kind, what is that? And he's like, this is the cherry Coke. And I said, have you, have you never had cherry Coke before? He goes, I've never had any Coke before, Pastor Nick. <laughs> my mom doesn't let us drink soda, way to go, like solid parenting, virtue signaling, you just didn't give your kids any soda, we see you, we're impressed by you. And I was like, but she said this week at camp I could try any of them that I wanted to. It's like, oh, Pastor Nick, this is good. I have tasted and I have seen, ooh. And... If I would have asked him that day, Riggins, what do you suppose is in that soda that you just drank? He wouldn't have had a clue. Riggins, how do you suppose that they made that soda that you're drinking? Not a single clue. He just knew that it was good. And I want to let you off the hook this morning, because I think some of us sometimes feel the weight and the pressure of being able to evangelize. That's a big word that means literally sharing the good news of Jesus that we have found and encountered in life. And and you feel the pressure and the weight and the burden to make sure that everybody around you has has heard the gospel good news story. And you're literally saying, hey, I don't don't know how the Coca-Cola was made. I just know that it's good. And, And I get that. I get that you have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, somehow at some point in your life encountered something, seen something, tasted something that was just so good, it revolutionized the way that you chose beverages at lunch on a cafeteria day. No, like you've literally tasted and seen that it's good, but that's not an automatic translation to telling somebody how it's made or telling somebody where it came from, or telling somebody what it means, telling somebody what it's gonna do. So please, don't, if you're a dietitian, please don't come to me later on and tell me all the ingredients that are in Cherry Coke and why they're so bad for you and why nobody should drink it, why it's doing harmful things to you. It's like, that's not the point. But you don't know all those things. And we're not asking you to communicate all those things. But you do need to be able to say that Jesus is good and why you like it and what he did for you. And so this morning, we're going to dive in, not to the New Testament scriptures that chronicle for us the the story of salvation. We're going to kick it back old school to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. It's literally one of my favorite passages in Old Testament scripture. So I, not because of the coffee, will get a little bit hyped up this morning as we go through these verses. And you'll find out why this matters so much to me. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 1, you read these words. It says, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws that the Lord your God directed me. It's Moses talking. It's Moses talking. He's literally addressing the community of Israelites, the ones that were rescued from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, the ones who can trace their ancestry back to Joseph and Isaac and Abraham. Literally, they know their ancestral fathers; they know the promises that God made, but they haven't experienced any of those yet. They've literally walked out of after a series of miracles, slavery in Egypt, and now they're wandering around in a wilderness for decades. And God provides for them a law, and Moses says, "Hey." All this stuff that I've said to you, these decrees, these laws, these commands from God that he directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing, the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children and their children, we just sang that your children and their children and their children, so that those children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. here, Israel. And be careful to obey that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you. And then you come to the most important verse in all of the Hebrew scriptures, the most important verse in the Old Testament, the most important confession of faith that any good Jew would ever make and recite and memorize. It's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. And if you had come from generations of polytheistic, let's worship anything under the sun, including the sun worship in a land called Egypt, if you had been indoctrinated to believe literally any manner of anything about everything, this command mattered the most. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. This is literally the first and greatest commandment because when Jesus was asked by a young expert in the law to sum up all of the Old Testament, he literally quoted this verse. He wasn't making something up off the top. He said, well, you know, I think now that you asked me, you should love God with everything that you have. He's quoting the Shema saying, this matters more than anything else. Love God with everything. And then he says, these commands that I give you today are beyond your heart's. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods that you did not provide. Wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied. Ooh, Pastor Nick, this tastes good. That's better than the kind my mama buys. It's good. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Slavery, Lord, we pray that today you would take your word, that you would make it come alive, that we could hear its heartbeat, that we could see the lungs breathing and moving around us, Father, that we could sense the power of your Holy Spirit and that we could hear a word that is so distinctly yours that we're changed by it. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray and to your fame that we live and go. Amen. It's in your notes this morning if you're a person who likes to follow along and, and write things down, to help you stay awake and help you focus and remember things later. An intentional life that we've been talking about is an obedient life. And what we have to understand from this scripture is that to hear God is to obey God. Those words, hear, O Israel, the, the Lord our God is one. That word here is the Hebrew word shema, and every word in the Hebrew language has to do double duty. They have to multitask. They have to mean more than one thing for us. So the word shema is not just the word for hear. It's also the word for listen. That, of course, makes sense. It's the word for obey. Like, if you read the word obey in Scripture, you're reading the word Shema, and those words were so connected to the life of the Israelite. Like, to hear God meant that you obeyed God, and if you did not obey God, that meant you did not hear God, and that's why the Old Testament and all good parents repeat themselves, because we need the kids to listen. And so scripture repeats some of the same things over and over and over again, sometimes in different ways, sometimes in different contexts, sometimes in different illustrations, so that the people would listen. That's why his voice, that's why his words, that's why these pages, that's why the prophets, his mouthpieces who communicated what those words were are such prominent key features throughout this work. An intentional life is an obedient one. And if you hear God, you obey God. That's the outset of what we believe about him. The essence of that obedience is a singular allegiance. It's a singular allegiance. We're to love God with everything we have, and that doesn't leave anything left over for anything or anyone else. It's the very essence of the first command that he gave us. In Exodus chapter 20, those are the stone tablets, the, the 10 commandments that some of us memorized as kids. We're literally to have no other gods before him, not beside him, not equal to him. It's, it's him and him alone. We're not to make graven images and worship false things. We're literally to worship him and to him alone. This is for foreshadowing Israel's future because they would always have a problem with idolatry. They would always, it's foreshadowing our future, let's be honest, because we always have a problem with idolatry. God knew that would be an issue. If you fast forward into the life of Israel after they inhabited the land, God gave them a prophet named Samuel. They're carrying around the Ark of the Covenant. Inside it are the stone tablets, stone tablets where God had scribed his words and they're carrying it with them wherever they go and it was literally housed in a place where it was overtaken in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines, they came and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into the temple of their false god. His name was Dagon and they set it up inside the temple with their false idol Dagon and the next day they went in and Dagon had fallen down. And so they went and they set Dagon back up on his pedestal and they go in the next morning and not only had Dagon fallen down but his Hands and head broken off completely. God will not share space in a temple of a foreign pagan God. He's not going to share space inside your heart either. He gets a room, unlike my girls, all to himself. There's no room for any alternate allegiance in our lives. It's, it's God, and it's, it's literally God alone. John Calvin says that he would rather be, oh, this is a big, bold statement. He would rather be accounted nothing than not be worshiped undecidedly. He would rather be nothing to you than one of many things to you. It's him and him alone in Ezekiel chapter twenty. He literally looks at the people of Israel and he says, this is what the sovereign Lord, go serve your idols. I just imagine this in such a sarcastic kind of like cocky, go ahead, you do you, go, go serve your idols, every one of you. But afterwards, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and your idols. Go ahead, you do you, get wayward, have your cake, but one day you're going to return. We have no room. No room for any of those false idols in our lives because our volume, this is probably my ministry mantra, the thing that literally has stuck with me all these years and decades that have been in positions like this. Volume speaks value. We're not just talking about the volume of how loudly we say something. Y'all were singing loud just a minute ago. I heard it. Did you hear your neighbor? Singing so loud, like maybe even a little bit off key. That's okay. You shout to the Lord. like We're singing loud in here. Like volume is not just how loudly we do something, it's, it's how much we do something. It's, it's how much liquid is in my coffee cup, which is dangerously getting low this morning. Like how much volume is, is in a container. It's not just how loudly you say something, it's how often you say something. I've been convinced as parents and the people doing family ministry and talking to parents that for years and years and years, we've got a whole group of people who are like, well, did you make your bed this morning? We'll ask our kid every single day, did you make your bed this morning? Oh, hi did you do your homework last night? Oh, we'll ask them every single day if they finished their homework last night. If we ask our kids a thousand times between age five and age 12th grade, if they did their homework and only twice what their relationship with the Lord is like, our volume has spoken a we care about your grades. We care about how clean your room is more than we care about your eternal soul and your connection to your Father. We're giving them false idols. We're telling them other things matter. Our volume speaks value. How often are you out there in the world saying, "Ooh, this right here tastes good. Ooh, I like it. It's, it's doing something for me. Are you communicating the value of these things? Deuteronomy 6 and 7 says, These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. You're to impress them on your children. If you read the NASB, it doesn't say impress them on your children. It says teach them diligently to your sons. And it literally is the Hebrew word for sharpen. Like sharpen your kids. Make them like arrows. I've been thinking about pencil sharpeners this week. And one of the things I've asked the kids for is, I want one of those old-fashioned pencil sharpeners. I want to mount it to the workbench in my garage garage. where I can literally stick a pencil in the side and crank it real hard and get it to the finest point. I want to impress. That's the goal. Like we're sharpening our kids so that they're able to handle the world around them. It's this whole picture of what we do and how we do it and how often we say it to pass faith on to the next generation. How often do you talk about Jesus? How often are you communicating his goodness? And how often does that translate into an explanation of why he's good and how he's good and what it means to, to know and to follow him? Side note, we have to be winsome. We have to be winsome as a people. The most popular memorized verse in all scriptures comes from John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting, have eternal life. And, And verse 17 is important. We don't memorize that one nearly as much. But it says, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world. When's the last time that somebody who condemned you was a person that you wanted to be around? God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We talked about 1 Peter three fifteen earlier in this series. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Love him with everything that you have. And then it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do it winsome. Do it with gentleness and respect. Like, we're to be a winsome People, So that when you're sitting down at the table saying, oh, that tastes good, all the other people around you are like, well, I want a bite. I want it too. Where'd you get that? Oh, the third aisle? I'll go back. I'll grab me some too. Like that's the goal of being a believer. And this passage in Deuteronomy gives us not only the goodness of God that we're to communicate with other people. It gives us the pattern in which we're supposed to communicate it to others. It provides daily rhythms like daily rhythms that give us a framework for sharing our faith. We're to talk about it when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That's literally at the start of the day, at the close of the day, when you're sitting around the table having a meal, when you're on your way to other places. There's a natural pattern for being able to communicate the almighty goodness of God and why you love him so much. It goes on to say that we should tie them as symbols on our hands and bind them on our foreheads, write them on the door frames of our houses and On our gates. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Deuteronomy 6 9, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you land with large, flourishing cities, y'all, the last time they had doors, they were slaves. And God gave him some instructions of what to do with those doors. The dad of the family was supposed to grab a lamb and to kill it and take a bunch of hyssop and to dip it in the blood and to paint it on the door flames of their house as slaves. They were to paint the blood on the door frames, the the lintel and the posts of their home so that the death angel would pass over that house and go on to the next house. And Egypt didn't get the warning. So while all of the firstborn sons and firstborns of Egypt died, Israel was spared their lives Lives were literally paid for by blood on a doorpost, and now they're wandering around in the wilderness. So, like, Moses, you've, we don't have doors. The last time we had doors, it was blood. The next time we get doors, it's words. Oh, that's our faith. My life was spared, blood on a cross. My life has changed words in my heart. Last time we had doors, we had to spread some blood. Next time we get doors, we get to write some words. The Hebrew word for door frame is mezuzah. Maybe you've heard that word before. Because now in modern times, it's a little tiny box that people Jewish people, they nail on the doors of their homes. Like really devout ones put it on every door frame in their home house, except for the bathroom and the laundry room. That's like a kosher thing. Okay, so any door in any house, most people just put it on the door that they enter in and out of the most. It's a tiny little box. Sometimes they're really, really fancy. They might even be made of gold and inside is a tiny rolled up scroll. If you're a good devout Jew, that means that you got a sofa to write it down for you. Somebody that was like an official scribe and they wrote it on the skin of a kosher animal. We have one at our house and it's a tiny little wooden box that I got on a trip to Israel and it sits at a slant on the door that we enter into and out of our house the most. And there's a tiny little rolled up piece of animal skin. Just kidding. That's weird. It's just a piece of paper. And it has the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that every time we come in and every time we go out, we're reminded that those words To be on our hearts. That we're reminded that we're supposed to impress them to our children, onto the next generation, to those who come up after us and around us. We're to pass faith onto other people. Last time we had a door, it was blood. Next time we get a door, it's going to be words. And why do we use the words? It's because we need the reminders. Y'all need a reminder? I do. I have many of them on my phone. Neglecting. Here's your reminder for today. Neglecting is the same as forgetting. I don't forget that my wedding anniversary is June 10th. We got married in the year 2000, so it's real easy to do the math and figure out how long we've been together. I don't forget that Susan's birthday is February 11th. You wanna write that down, February 11th. It's the same as Jennifer Aniston and Cheryl Crow and my cousin. Like you can write them all down and remember four birthdays with just one date. Like, I don't forget that that's her birthday. I don't forget our wedding anniversary. I don't forget that this campus of Rolling Hills Community Church officially launched on August the 26th in 2018, Belmont University. Those are But, but sometimes I neglect to make them as important and as special as they should be. I, I may not forget that Susan's birthday is coming up on whatever day it's coming up on, But I might get to 10 o'clock the night before and be like, ooh, I wonder what I can expedite here. Is Target still open? Neglecting is the same as forgetting. You may not forget that God parted the sea. You may not forget that God provided a way for your son to be spared. You may not forget that he gave you drinking water from a rock and bread from heaven. But they neglected to honor and to celebrate to the full extent of the ways that they could honor and celebrate all the good things that God had done. The people were not in danger of forgetting all those miracles. They were just in danger of celebrating other things and other ones alongside over and above those miracles. Here's my note. It's that forgetting, neglecting, it ought to be our absolute greatest fear. Our greatest fear ought to be that of Forgetting to prioritize God's place in our life in such a way that other people taste and see how good He is. Judges chapter 2. So if you fast forward Moses, who's giving these words in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he dies. And all of the other ancestors, the people who had literally been slaves in Egypt and had walked across the sea to freedom, they all died. And now there's a whole other generation under the leadership of Joshua. They actually get to go and take the land and the cities. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And they literally now live in. In these places, and now this whole generation dies, like Joshua and all of those parents and grandparents, I mean, they just get old, it happens, they pass away, and it says after in Judges 2.10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a nice way of saying that they passed, another generation grew up who did not know the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, that ought to be our greatest fear that the generation that comes after us, that the people that surround us know less and less and less about how, oh, that's good, about how good God is and about why he's that good. We have the absolute greatest good news to share and nothing matters more than how faith is formed. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 4, Salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name in under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter literally proclaims this good news message to the people around him. And then when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You fast forward in that chapter, it says, then they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen, Shema, to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Oh, this is good. And I can't help but tell everybody that I know how good it is, how much I need it, and explain to them how they need it too. If you have that booklet that's been prepared for you, it's your mezuzah. Don't tack it to the wall of your house. That would be strange, but maybe... Maybe you put it in a prominent place that you'll see regularly and that you'll be, this is how cherry Coke is made. This is why and how God is good. It's a a simple gospel presentation that's illustrated. It's provided not only for you today in print form, but it's on the Rolling Hills website. It's on the Rolling Hills mobile app. You can always take a reference point. If somebody has questions, you can literally say to them, hey, it may sound weird to you, but I just want to tell you what I believe and why I believe it. And at the end of this, you may think that I'm more cuckoo than you already do. But if you want to know me and you want to know what I think is good, the most important thing to me, the most valuable thing to me, it's this right here. We call it God's good news. and We believe this truth. That God created us to enjoy a personal relationship with him and to have a purposeful life. This is the foundational belief that we as believers, and like we believe that God created the world and everybody in it and that the whole purpose that he had is that you and I would be able to have an intimate relationship with him. It's us and God in community, and in fellowship with one another. And it started out that way from the very beginning. And then so we ask ourselves, like, well, why? If this is God's purpose, why in the world is it that so many people do not have a a close relationship with God? Well, that's because of sin. Our sin separates us from God. The book of Acts says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity. Like there's no way that he can share space in a foreign pagan temple with a false god and he can't share space with a foreign pagan god in your heart either. Like sin separates us from him. So how do we deal with the separation from God? Like what's the the manner that we try? We respond in a variety of ways. We'll like go to church. Some of y'all have got perfect attendance. Like this room is well lit. I can see all the way to the back. I know who was here last week, no judgment. Moral life, some of y'all are real good, like you do good deeds, like you make wise choices. Like we we try all of these things like to be able to have a close relationship, like what, what else can be done about the separation? None of that bridges the gap. So what can be done? It's Jesus. Like this is literally New Testament story of what we believe that God sent his one perfect son to die on a really cruel like convict's cross. So that this gap between us can be bridged by somebody else's sacrifice. How in the world can we cross over from death to life and believe what God has done for us? It's genuine faith. You weren't there. You didn't see it. You didn't touch the nail scars. You're literally reading books and pages that are thousands of years old and the testimonies of other people that are around you, and you're trusting a spirit that you cannot see. It literally takes genuine faith to put your trust and your hope and your life in the hands of a Savior. And what is genuine faith? What even is that? What does it mean? It's all of your mind, all of your will, all of your heart. It's literally saying, okay, I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to trust you with with everything that I have. And if you're giving a gospel presentation to somebody who literally does not know why in the world you believe what you believe and what it means, you can literally say, as weird as it may sound to you, I believe this with every fiber of my being, and I trust that God has me no matter what. And you can boldly ask the question, where are you now? Are you like so far from being able to believe? Are you like literally inching closer to the idea of faith? Are you ready to cross over into somebody who expresses faith and and trust and belief in Jesus? And then Lord be willing and Holy Spirit be moving and you be blessed, you might get to pray with somebody in a way that would alter their entire eternity. We printed it and we provided it and and it's always gonna be available to you to give to others, to walk through with others, to share with others because we want you to have a simple plan of where cherry coat came from. What's the blend of how, this is it. This is the recipe that tastes substitutionary atonement. Somebody died in my place. Romans chapter six, right? Like, like literally the wages of my sin is death and eternal separation from God. But his gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ literally died for us. From the start of this book to the finish of it, our purpose is rooting our pleasure in God. Oh, he's just so good. It tastes better than that stuff my mama buys. It's just so good. And him and him alone. And then passing that faith on to everybody that we know. Passing it on to everybody that we know. In this passage of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter six, it literally says over and over again to impress them on your children. When Moses said to the entire community of Israelites, hey, you guys are to hear that God is one. You're to love him with everything that you have. These words today are to be on your hearts. He didn't say, okay, now I'm gonna pause to the entire general populace and speak only to those of you who have procreated. Parents, listen up. It's your job to make sure that your children know it was the call of the entire community of Israel to ensure that faith was passed to the generations of people that were coming up after them and to every single lost soul that was uh, around them. It's all of our burden to bear. And so we pass faith. We share the story. It's good news. We love it. Whew. It's so good. I want more. I want you to try it too. That's informing people the good news. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, holy God. We want to be a people who just recognize how very good you are. A people who cannot help but communicate to anyone and everyone around us the goodness that we've experienced, to share the desire that we have, For other people to see and taste and know you too. So would you help us? Would you help us to be a people who remember? Would you help us to be a people who are reminded? To communicate your love, to communicate your truth, to communicate your will and your way to other people around us who desperately need to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so that you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? check out the Making History and Parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful you spent some time with us today. We'll see you next time.